Hello, and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens, publisher and editor of FilmJerk.com. Thank you for listening today. If you like what you hear and you haven't done so already, please make sure to rate and review the show on your favorite podcatching source. Good reviews and ratings are amongst the most effective ways for an independent podcast like this one to break away from the pack, and you can even do it while you're listening to the episode. On this episode, we'll be taking a look back at the short but spectacular career of one of 80 cinema's most distinct directorial voices, Scottish filmmaker Bill Forsyth. But before we get to Mr. Forsyth, I want to follow up on our contest from the previous episode. First off, congratulations to Randolph R. Rhodes of Hollywood, California, for coming the closest to how I would have programmed the theater on Christmas Day, 1989. Here's how I would have done it. First off, because it was Christmas Day, it was going to be a very busy day all day, no matter what we played. But I would have wanted to make sure that I am ensuring that my theaters were full all day because, once again, the more stuff I sold at the snack bar, the higher my commission check was going to be. And because you sell more popcorn and candy to families than you do to couples or to friends or to people going to the movies by themselves, I would want to program as many family-friendly titles as possible. The week before Christmas and the week after Christmas, I might have totally different pairings or titles altogether. But for this week, Christmas week, family-friendly offerings are king. So that immediately gets rid of Black Rain, Crimes and Misdemeanors, Dad, Drugstore Cowboy, Family Business, The Fabulous Baker Boys, An Innocent Man, Lethal Weapon 2, Sea of Love, and Shocker. And like that, we're down to 12 potential films from 22. For my first screen, I would pair up The Bear and Prancer, with Prancer taking the prime show because it's a Christmas movie, and it's Christmas today. For my second screen, I would obviously pair up Canine and Turner and Hooch, right? Actually, yes, I would. They're both about cops and their cop dogs, but which one would be the prime show? Remember. Tom Hanks in 1989 was not that big of a star yet. Yes, he had had a big hit and an Oscar nomination for Big the year before, but he was still four years away from winning his first Academy Award, and Turner and Hooch wasn't that big of a hit. But it is more family-friendly than Canine, and Hanks is still better known and more popular than Belushi, so Turner and Hooch takes the prime slot. For the third screen, I would split The Wizard and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Although The Wizard was considered a bomb when it hit theaters, I would leap at the chance to play a movie that had only opened ten days earlier. So The Wizard would get the matinee shows and Indy the evening shows. For my fourth screen, I would put Parenthood and Uncle Buck together. Because there has to be one screen that won't alienate childless couples and friends who want to hang out, but don't want to be bothered by kids in a movie theater. And Uncle Buck would get the prime spot because it's a shorter movie. So, there you are. Thanks for everyone who entered. Keep listening, we're going to have some more contests coming soon. Now, we move on to Bill Forsyth. Never heard of the guy? That's not surprising at all. You might not recognize his name, but if you're a fan of 80s movies, you've probably seen, or at least heard of, one of his movies. We'll get to them in a moment. 
William David Forsyth was born in Glasgow, Scotland on July 29, 1946. His father a plumber, while his mom stayed at home to raise their son. Forsyth didn't dream of becoming a filmmaker. He was an average student at Knightwood School, a secondary school in his neighborhood, which he, depending on the source, either dropped out of at the age of 16 or graduated from at the age of 17 and, depending on the source, either dropped out of school for or went to work for, after graduation, Clyde Films, after seeing an advert in the pages of the Glasgow Evening Citizen that asked for a lad required to work for a film company. Forsyth got to do all the grunt work that you would expect a young teenage man to do at a film production company, and he quickly tired of it. He would quit Clyde Films so he could attend the National Film and Television School in the fall of 1964, but he would quit the school after only one semester and return to Clyde Films. Forsyth would spend several years learning about filmmaking at Clyde, eventually becoming an editor on several of their documentary short subjects made between 1968 and 1977. He would leave Clyde Films in 1977 to form his own production company called Tree Films with fellow Glaswegian producer Charles Gormley. Their intent was to make full-length feature films, dramatic narratives that would highlight the talented young actors of the Glasgow Youth Theatre. The first screenplay Forsyth would write was a comedy called Gregory's Girl, about an awkward teenager who falls in love with a young woman who replaces him on the school soccer team, who is unaware one of her friends has a crush on him. Forsyth would write the screenplay to highlight the comedic talents of one of the youth theater's actors, a 15-year-old named John Gordon Sinclair, except Forsyth would have trouble getting Gregory's girl financed. About the only way a young, mildly experienced film person like Forsyth would be able to find the 200,000 pounds he would need to fund the production would be through the BBC's production board. He would submit the script to the BBC on three separate occasions, and each time, the BBC would reject him. Years later, Forsyth would tell an interviewer about one of the meetings he had with the production board, which he described as feeling he was being tormented by the board for describing the film as being a structuralist comedy. Undeterred, Forsyth would write another comedy, which he felt he could make quite cheaply. That sinking feeling would be about four unemployed teenagers in Glasgow and how they came up with an idea that they think will make them rich. Stealing stainless steel sinks from a local warehouse and then selling them on this thing called the black market they had heard so much about. Forsyth would be able to raise about 10,000 pounds from friends and family and get a number of local businesses to donate production space and other items necessary to make a movie. And in the summer of 1978, Forsyth and his actors would begin production on the film. His production team would include cinematographer Michael Coulter, who would be making his feature film debut as the director of photography, in a career that would include shooting Four Weddings and a Funeral, Sense and Sensibility, Notting Hill, and Love Actually, in addition to four other films with Forsyth. It's been far too long since I've seen that sinking feeling, and that was going to be something I was planning on rectifying in preparation for this episode. But sadly, it's just not available in any current format in the United States. There is, what I'm told, a lovely Blu-ray DVD dual format disc available from the British Film Institute, 
which has a number of fantastic special features, including several of the documentary shorts Forsyth worked on in the 60s and 70s. But unless you have an all-region DVD or Blu-ray player, you're just not going to be able to watch it legally in the States. Once production was completed on that sinking feeling, the film would get an unexpected invitation to screen at the Edinburgh International Film Festival, which would be held in late August 1979. Shortly after that world premiere, the film would be picked up by a British distributor called GTO, whose other titles during that time frame would include Tinto Brass's Notorious Caligula, John Waters' Polyester, and Julian Temple's punk mockumentary Punk Can Take It, and would be released into theaters across the UK in October of 1980. And while the film would gross nine times its minuscule budget, the film would not become profitable enough for Foresight or his actors to ever see another penny outside of the original sale. But it would be successful enough for Forsyth to be able to finally secure the financing needed to make Gregory's Girl. Now 17, John Gordon Sinclair would star as the lead character, alongside a number of other young Scottish actors, including 17-year-old Claire Grogan, who, in addition to acting with the Scottish Youth Theatre, was also the lead singer and songwriter in a local new wave band called Alter Images. Grogan almost lost her part due to a large scar on her chin that was a result of her being in the wrong place at the wrong time, finding herself in the middle of a bar fight where she got hit in the face with some broken glass. But Forsyth refused to recast the role and would work with his DP, Michael Coulter, and the makeup team to regularly shoot her in an opposite profile or with special makeup applications to reduce how the scar might appear on screen. I did watch the film for the first time in many years last week, and it's still a fun and insightful film about young love and growing up. But perhaps that's part nostalgic, since I saw so much of myself in Gregory when the film finally made it to America in the summer of 1982. Like Gregory, I was tall for my age. I had a mop for hair. I was not particularly good at soccer, and I was desperately in love with a young lady from school whom I got along with just fine, but she wasn't into me that way. My wife begrudgingly watched the film with me as well. She wasn't a fan of it the first time years ago, and she's still not a fan. Gregory's Girl, thankfully, is rather easy to stream online, at least in October of 2021 when this is being recorded. You can stream it in high definition for free on IMDB TV or on Canopy if your local library offers a subscription with your library card or on Plex. Gregory's Girl wasn't that big of a hit when it played in America, but it had grossed more than $25 million in the rest of the world when it opened in the spring of 1981, so Forsyth would already be busy working on his next film when this was making its way around the States. When Gregory's Girl was breaking records across the United Kingdom, British film producer David Putnam who was finishing post-production on a little movie he had produced called Chariots of Fire, called Forsyth up and asked the director what he was planning on doing next. Forsyth pitched the producer an idea about an American gas company executive who was stymied by the local residents when he is sent by his boss to purchase Furness, a small Scottish town in the Highlands, in order to build a refinery. Putnam loved the idea, and he went to his partners on Chariots of Fire the British film company Goldcrest Films, and the American film studio Warner Brothers in order to secure financing for the $5 million movie. Putnam was rejected, 
but undeterred. He would find someone to make this movie come hell or high water. Then, Chariots of Fire was released theatrically in the United States and the United Kingdom and started racking up award wins after award win. A few days after Chariots won the BAFTA for Best Film, Putnam got his financing. From Goldcrest Films For the role of Felix Happer, the eccentric head of Knox Oil and Gas, Putnam had but one actor in mind, the legendary Oscar-winning actor Burt Lancaster. Although Lancaster was far removed from his days as a box office draw, he still commanded a hefty payday for his time, commiserate with his status as an icon of cinema, and in deference to the buzz that was surrounding his then-current role in Louis Malle's drama Atlantic City, for which he would receive his fourth Oscar nomination for Best Actor. Lancaster's asking price was $2 million, which would amount to 40% of the entire budget of the film. Days after Chariots of Fire won the Academy Award for Best Picture, Warner Brothers would sign on to distribute the movie in America and would provide the extra money to the budget in order to sign Lancaster. To play Mac McIntyre, who was sent to Scotland to close the deal mostly because his boss Happer thinks his last name sounds Scottish, Forsyth wanted either Michael Douglas or Henry Winkler, but in the end would cast Peter Rieger, still best known at the time for his movie debut as Boone in National Lampoon's Animal House. Outside of a few scenes shot in Houston for Knox Oil's headquarters and testing lab, local hero would be shot in and around the Scottish Highlands with a number of towns standing in for the fictional village of Furness. Like with that sinking feeling in Gregory's Girl, Forsyth would cast a number of Scottish actors to fill the supporting roles, including John Gordon Sinclair, Dennis Lawson, best known to audiences worldwide as Wedge Antilles in Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back, and a 24-year-old actor for whom this would be his first featured role in a motion picture, Peter Capaldi. Forsyth would shoot local hero throughout the spring and summer of 1982, when natural lighting in the Highlands would be plentiful until late in the evening, and would have the film ready to be released in early 1983. For the first time in his career, Bill Forsyth would have a movie open in the United States before it opened in the United Kingdom. Warner Brothers would open Local Hero at the Cinema One in Midtown Manhattan on February 18th and spurred on by great reviews from the likes of Janet Maslin of the New York Times, Andrew Saris of The Village Voice, and Richard Schickel of Time Magazine, the film would gross an impressive $23,567 in its first four days more than two and a half times the per-screen average of Martin Scorsese's The King of Comedy, which had opened on 14 screens in major markets the same weekend. The studio would open the film at the Regent Theater in Westwood four weeks later, and would slowly expand the film over the course of the next three months. But despite the continued fantastic reviews and healthy gross, Warners would never expand the film to more than 207 screens nationwide, when it hit that mark in its 13th week of release on May 13th. And then suddenly, after Memorial Day weekend two weeks later, Warners abruptly stopped tracking the film after it grossed $5.76 million, and while it was still playing in 173 theaters. The film, however, would continue to play in theaters all summer and all fall, finally ending its theatrical run in early January 1984. 
It would open in London and Glasgow in March of 1983, and while I do not have grosses for its run in the UK, the film was enough of a success around the world where Forsyth would be able to move more quickly and easily to secure financing for his next movie. But we'll get there in a moment. While I loved Gregory's Girl when I saw it in the summer of 1982, Local Hero is the movie that made me fall in love with Scotland when I saw it in the spring of 1983. It would take me more than 32 years to finally make it to Scotland when my sister-in-law decided to get married on the Isle of Skye. But I fell for Edinburgh and Portree and Inverness and Dunkeld and the Highlands and some of the finest Scotches. And I was overjoyed to discover in 2019 that, contrary to my family lore, I was nearly one-third Scottish. Sadly, I didn't have time to visit Glasgow or any of the towns used to shoot local hero. But I will be making that trip on my next visit, once our current global pandemic is finally nipped in the bud. But I wasn't the only one who was enraptured by this movie. When an asteroid that orbits the sun between Mars and Jupiter was discovered in 1992, it was named Happer, after Burt Lancaster's character in the movie, who desperately wanted a comet to be named after him. Now, granted, an asteroid isn't the same thing as a comet, but how many fictional characters from a non-science fiction movie have anything in space named after them? Local Hero is also very easy to stream online although it will cost you $3.99 for a rental on Amazon, Apple TV, Google Play, Vudu, or YouTube. But if you're going to pay $3.99 to rent it once, you might as well buy it for $5.99 through Apple TV because you're going to watch this movie more than once in your life. During the 1985 Toronto Film Festival, Forsyth would give an interview to journalist Gerald Perry where he gave what would become a strangely prescient answer to a question posed to him. Perry asked Forsyth if Warner Brothers had been satisfied with Local Hero when they released it in 1983. Forsyth would answer as such. This was one of the earliest brushes I had with a studio. I was sat down in Los Angeles with a couple of Warner's executives and was asked if I would like to reshoot the ending. I don't precisely know what ideas they had, but I said, no, I'm not interested. The movie had been finished for seven months and the last thing on my mind was to retire to one of those beaches and try to think up a new ending. That experience was quite a surprise. That was very benign pressure because Warners was very happy with the movie and happy to distribute it. Well, I thought, if this is the best, God help me if they ever get serious. It would get serious with Warners eight years later. We'll get there soon enough. While shooting Local Hero, Forsyth was already hard at work on his next story idea about a disc jockey in Glasgow. During Forsyth's younger days, most of the radio channels in Scotland were coming from the BBC in London. Well, not most. All. In 1973, the first independent local radio station outside London would open in Glasgow, which was called Radio Clyde, and was an instant hit. Glaswegians loved listening to a channel where the DJs sounded like them. But he didn't have enough material for a movie, so he tried adding a love story, which added pages to the screenplay, but still left the overall story looking for a unique hook. On the set of Local Hero, Forsyth would strike up a friendship with Peter Capaldi, and during one of their offset discussions, Capaldi, who is also from Glasgow, would regale his director about tales of his family, who operated an ice cream truck in the city 
and desperately were trying to steer clear of a war brewing between rival ice cream truck operators who used their trucks to offload drugs, which gave Forsyth a new perspective for his story. There'd still be an ice cream war, but over whose ice cream tasted better, with the vapid radio DJ stumbling into the war when he sees a pretty young woman in one of the ice cream trucks around town. Verity Lambert, the original producer of Doctor Who in 1963, would announce Comfort and Joy as one of the films her production company would be making at Thorn EMI Screen Entertainment, and the film would go into production in Glasgow in November of 1983 with a $2 million budget. Scottish actor Bill Patterson stars as Alan Dickie Bird, who comes home from his job at a Glasgow radio station a few days before Christmas to discover his girlfriend is moving out of their flat. Dickie is heartbroken, but soon finds himself in traffic one day where he eyes a beautiful young woman inside a Mr. Bunny ice cream truck. They make eyes at each other, and Dickie ends up following the ice cream truck for several miles until it finally makes a stop. He musters up the courage to approach the truck in an attempt to speak to her, but can't get past the ice cream truck driver. The best Dickie can do is have her hand him a candy bar. As Dickie is walking back to his car, another car comes speeding up the street, stopping directly in front of the ice cream truck, and three men get out of the car with baseball bats where they go to proceed to beat the crap out of the truck. As the vandals go about escaping the carnage they had just created, one of them recognizes Dickie and stops to beg the DJ for an on-air dedication to his mother on the following day's program. Like the fairy tale Alice, Dickie falls down the rabbit hole as he tries to resolve a conflict between two warring ice cream truck companies that turns out to be far more complicated than he could have ever realized, all to impress this young woman. And who can blame him? That young woman is played by none other than Gregory's girl herself, Claire Grogan, who in the intervening years since that movie would become internationally famous with her band Altered Images, whose songs Happy Birthday and I Could Be Happy would become hits on both sides of the Atlantic. Grogan would also be the inspiration for the hit Spandau Ballet song True. After the film made its world premiere at the 1984 Edinburgh Film Festival, American studio Universal Pictures, who had an output deal with Thorny EMI to distribute their films in America, would slot Comfort and Joy into a late fall 1984 release. Not a bad choice considering the Christmas timed setting for the film. But then Universal decided to release it in one theater, the Plaza Theater at 58 and Madison, near the southeast corner of Central Park, on Wednesday, October 10th, followed four weeks later by a single-screen opening at the Fine Arts Theater in Beverly Hills. The reviews were quite good, but Universal didn't support the movie all that much. There'd be small ads in the newspaper, but no television commercials, and 35mm trailers were only sent to theaters that had already booked the film. It's little wonder the film would only gross a tiny bit more than $1 million at the American box office. It would fare somewhat better in the UK, especially in Scotland, and especially in Glasgow. Sadly, Comfort and Joy is not currently legally streaming on any service in America, and like that sinking feeling, is only available on a DVD from the BFI that can't be played on a U.S. player. And, like with Local Hero and Comfort and Joy, Forsyth was already hard at work on what would become his next production, 
before his current film was complete. While he was making the award circuit round in late 1983 and early 1984 in support of Local Hero, an actor's friend of the director sent him a copy of Marilyn Robinson's 1980 novel Housekeeping about a pair of teenage girls who are sent to live with their eccentric aunt after their mother takes her own life and their father disappears. The actress thought Forsyth would enjoy the book. He didn't just enjoy the book. He had found the next story he wanted to tell. Housekeeping would be a departure from Forsyth's previous films. It would be the first of his films to not take place in Scotland, and it would be the first with a female lead character. But unlike Local Hero in Comfort and Joy, the film would take some time to come together. After spending his own money to acquire the screen rights to the novel, Forsyth spent two years trying to find the financing. He went to Goldcrest and to EMI. He went to Warner Brothers and to Universal. He went to production companies based in Canada and Norway, and he went to a number of American production companies. No was all he heard. That would change when Academy Award-winning actress Diane Keaton, whom he had gotten to know socially during the 1983-84 award season, had heard about the story and called the director to ask if she could read the script. She liked what she read and asked if she could play the role of Sylvie, the unconventional aunt at the center of the story. Of course, Forsyth would welcome her aboard the production. Who wouldn't? It's Diane freaking Keaton. Which is exactly what 80s B-movie masters Canon Films thought after Keaton agreed to star in the movie. Canon, who was trying to class themselves up by making Oscar bait movies like Runaway Train and Barfly, in addition to their sleazy action films featuring Chuck Norris and Charles Bronson, agreed to finance the $6 million movie and release it based solely on Diane Keaton's name. Now armed with a major movie star and a commitment from one of the more successful independent production companies and distributors around, Forsyth would dive into pre-production on the film, choosing the small Canadian city of Nelson, British Columbia as a stand-in for the story's 1950s Idaho setting. But in early August of 1986, just six weeks before the planned start of shooting, Keaton would abruptly leave the movie without warning and without explaining to her director why. And with Keaton out of the picture, the picture was no longer worth it to Canon Films. Shut it down, they told Forsyth. Shut the whole thing down. Except Forsyth wasn't ready to shut it all down. He wasn't going to let this project go that quickly. And fortunately for him, he had been dealt an unexpected ace in the hole that could keep the movie moving along. David Putnam, the producer of Local Hero, had just been announced as the head of Columbia Pictures. We did a four-part series last fall on Mr. Putnam's time at the, as the head of Columbia, so some of this story may already be familiar to some listeners. But Putnam wasn't officially on the job yet. He and his wife, Patty, were taking a vacation through Europe with their children before he started. Forsyth would track Putnam down and explain to his friend, one-time producer and soon-to-be studio head, what just happened. And would there be any way Columbia might be interested in picking the project up? Within two days, Putnam had an agreement with Cannon for Columbia to pick the project up and turn around. But since he wasn't the boss at Columbia for another week, Putnam would front Cannon and the production his own money to ensure the film continued its course as scheduled. 
Once all that was sorted out, Putnam would make a casting suggestion to Forsyth. Consider Christine Lottie for the lead role. While Lottie had been Oscar-nominated for her supporting role in the 1984 war drama Swing Shift, and at the time was co-starring on screen with Mary Tyler Moore in Just Between Friends, she had never had the leading role in any movie. Lottie would fly up to Canada to meet with Forsyth about the role, and the film would begin production on its originally scheduled production start date, and with an extra half million dollars shaved off the budget because Lottie wasn't getting Keaton's paycheck. Shooting would last for two months, and Forsyth would spend most of 1987 in Los Angeles getting the film into shape. But, just as he was churning his final cut into the studio in August of 1987, a power struggle behind the scenes would force Putnam out of Columbia Pictures. Forsyth would lose his champion, and the film would become tainted because of its association with its now former studio head. To sidebar for a moment, it has been standard operating procedure in Hollywood that when a studio head has been removed from office not of their own volition, the films they had greenlit would, for the most part, be treated like toxic goods. The owners of a studio will deny this, as will any new studio head, but it is a thing, because it would be really embarrassing to a studio and its new studio head if a movie approved by the person who has just shown the door became a hit on their watch. Why would you let them go if it was clear they knew what they were doing? You really should listen to that Putnam at Columbia series when you're done with this episode, as I go into a bit more detail about this very real phenomenon. Housekeeping would open on two screens, including the Regency Cinema in New York City on November 25th, the day before Thanksgiving. In its first five days, the film would gross $43,000, its per-screen average second only to The Last Emperor. The reviews for the film were also uniformly positive. Vincent Canby of the New York Times said the film was by far the most accomplished comedy yet made by Mr. Forsythe, while Roger Ebert called it one of the strangest and best films of the year, while singling out Lottie as the perfect choice for Sylvie. Yet the film would never play in more than two dozen theaters in any given week, and it would barely gross a million dollars when Columbia stopped tracking it after six weeks. Although the film would continue to play on one screen each in Los Angeles and New York City through late February of 1988 in case it secured any Oscar nominations. It would not. Two years later, while promoting his next movie, which we'll be covering in a moment, Forsyth would tell Rita Kempley of the Washington Post that he thought the critical reaction to housekeeping was fine, but that people really go and see what they're told to see through advertising. And it was his belief that Columbia didn't spend any money advertising it or promoting it because Putnam had left. He's not wrong. As a former movie theater manager, I've seen the direct correlation between how much pre-release advertising exposure a movie gets or does not get and how well that movie does or does not do at the box office. I never once saw a single trailer or poster for housekeeping at any of the movie theaters I attended or worked at in the fall of 1987, nor at any of the theaters down in Los Angeles when I would get a few days off from work to drive down and catch a bunch of movies that I couldn't wait to see that were only playing down there at the time. I wouldn't get to see housekeeping until it arrived on VHS in late 1988. And to this day, Columbia Pictures has yet to release housekeeping on DVD or Blu-ray that 
1988 VHS tape is the only official release on physical media. But thankfully, the film is available currently to rent for $2.99 on Amazon or Vudu, or $3.99 from Apple TV, Google Play, or YouTube. And once again, Forsyth was already hard at work on his next movie idea before he was done with his current project. In 1948, the great Welsh poet and writer Dolan Thomas had written a screenplay called Rebecca's Daughters about a group of writers in 1840s Wales who rebel against the local aristocracy and destroy a series of toll gates that are making life miserable for the poor. But Forsyth would never be able to get the financing he needed to make the film his way. The film would be made in 1991 with a cast that included Peter O'Toole and Jolie Richardson, but not with Forsyth as director. And it would never get released theatrically in the United States or the United Kingdom. But Forsyth would not be without a job for long. Hearing that Forsyth might be available, Norman Lear's Act 3 production company would contact the filmmaker about coming aboard a little crime comedy they had in development called Breaking In which had been written several years earlier by the great writer and director John Sayles, who refused to direct the film himself because he didn't feel he was the best fit as director. Forsyth would accept the job and envisioned the great American character actor John Mahoney as the lead, a 60-something safecracker who takes on a much younger protege out of necessity and out of loneliness. The producers, however, wanted a star for the lead role, like a Paul Newman, or a Jack Nicholson. But the $5.5 million budget they had for the film would not land them a Paul Newman or a Jack Nicholson. If he needed to get a star to get the film made, Forsyth was going to get himself a star. And he went to the first star he could think of, Burt Reynolds. At this point in his career, in early 1988, Reynolds was deep in the first major downswing of his career. His days as a major box office draw were far behind him. After a string of bombs that followed him, after he chose to make Stoker Ace instead of Terms of Endearment. And that includes his two most recent films at the time, Rent-A-Cop, in which he co-starred with Liza Minnelli, and Switching Channels, a modern version of the classic play and movie The Front Page. Both films had opened in the first three months of the year, both to dismal reviews and even worse box office. But Forsyth was worried that the 53-year-old star might be offended at being asked to play someone a good decade older than he was. But Reynolds was intrigued by the idea. It would be the first time that Reynolds would be able to play a character role. And he would not only agree to make the film, he accepted SAG scale for the role. Because he liked the screenplay, and he really liked Forsyth. The actor would tell Donald Chase of the Los Angeles Times after the film was completed but not yet released that he had spent a career making the characters him instead of making himself the character, and that he had welcomed that change. In fact, Reynolds would gain 30 pounds and spend up to three hours a day in the makeup chair in order to play Ernie, the lead character. Casey Shimashko, who was one of Biff Tannen's gang in Back to the Future and the star of Three O'Clock High, would be cast as Mike, the young man who Ernie would take under his wing. And the cast would also include newcomer Sheila Kelly and veteran character actors like Harry Carey Jr., Maury Chaikin, and Stephen Tobolowsky. Breaking In would shoot in and around Portland, Oregon during July and August of 1988, 
and would include one noticeable callback to an earlier Forsyth film. In a scene where Mike buys a flashlight at a hardware store, there's a young man in the background holding a stainless steel sink. The Samuel Goldwyn Company, who had also released Gregory's Girl and That Sinking Feeling in the United States, would acquire Breaking In for distribution. Goldwyn had been on a hot streak for several years, distributing some truly memorable films, including Robert Townsend's Hollywood Shuffle, Stephen Frears's Prick Up Your Ears, Alex Cox's Sid and Nancy, and Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise. One of the reasons they were so successful was due to their patience in letting a film find its audience through word of mouth. Early critics' reviews for Breaking In were, as one would expect from a Bill Forsyth movie at this point, extremely good. So it was kind of odd for Goldwyn to throw the film out to 400 theaters when they opened it on October 13, 1988. And the film got slaughtered, opening up against Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors, the Jeff Bridges, Bo Bridges, Michelle Pfeiffer film The Fabulous Baker Boys, the fifth installment of the Halloween series, The Revenge of Michael Myers, and Amy Heckerling's Look Who's Talking, which would be the number one film of the week. Breaking In would only gross $679,000 that weekend, which was lower than Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which was playing in a similar number of theaters in its 11th week of release. Goldwyn would mount a fairly decent Oscar consideration campaign for the movie, for Forsyth as director, for Sales as screenplay, and for Reynolds as best actor. But the studio spent most of its money promoting the next film they would release after breaking in, Kenneth Branagh's Henry V, which would find Branagh double nominated as director and actor, and would win the Academy Award for best costume design. Breaking In is yet another Forsyth movie that is not currently available to stream in the United States. But MGM did put out a DVD of the movie back in 2002 that can still be purchased from some third-party vendors on Amazon for a fairly reasonable price. It's definitely a Burt Reynolds performance that deserves to be better known. Five years after completing Breaking In, Forsyth wanted to do something different an epic comedic drama that would celebrate the mendacity and mundanity of life. Being Human would be by far the biggest movie he had ever made with a budget of more than $20 million, nearly quadruple the budget of Breaking In. So how was he able to get such a big budget for a movie that would be the culmination of the themes he would regularly visit in his movies of alienation, loneliness, and isolation? Simple. He got his old friend David Putnam to come aboard as producer, and they were able to get one of the biggest stars in the world to play the lead character, Robin Williams. But wait, there's more. In addition to Williams, Forsyth was able to secure one of the best casts to ever be assembled for any movie in the modern age. Are you ready for this? Lorraine Bracco, Robert Carlyle, Lindsay Krauss, Vincent D'Onofrio, Hector Elizondo, Anna Galina, William H. Macy, David Morrissey, Bill Nye, John Turturro, and in their very first movie, two young Scottish actors, Tony Curran and Ewan McGregor. Because that's just the kind of thing Forsyth kept doing, bringing new Scottish talent to the screen. His story would follow a man named Hector through five different times in his life, 
first as a caveman, then in ancient Rome, followed by a Scottish soldier during the Crusades, a Portuguese man shipwrecked on the coast of Africa during the Renaissance, and finally as a modern man in New York City. Every Hector has something in common, a longing to connect with his wife and children, although he is regularly crippled with the inability to make a simple decision that will benefit himself, his life, and his family. Hector must return to human life over and over again until he can find the courage to do the right thing. But all would not go smoothly for Forsyth during the shoot. Used to being able to workshop scenes with his actors, Forsyth discovered that this was something that just didn't happen on big-budget Hollywood movies. In fact, Forsyth was expected to shoot his film as quickly and as economically as possible, which was, as practically anyone who has ever worked on a movie set can attest to, easier said than done. Especially when you're shooting in locations like London, Los Angeles, Morocco, San Francisco, and the Scottish Highlands. At one point, while the movie had been in production for several months, the studio decided the cost of insuring the cast and crew from an unlikely malaria outbreak during a planned shipwreck scene would be too cost-prohibitive. Forsyth would rewrite the shipwreck sequence and turn it into a desert landing in the jungle in order to accommodate the new shooting location. But that one change would snowball into needing to revise that entire section of the movie. And all while the cast and crew were still on the clock, as it were. By the end of the production, the expected three-month shoot lasted five and a half months, and the $20 million budget had ballooned to more than $35 million, which, as practically anyone who's ever worked on a big-budget movie set can attest to, is going to keep happening when you have a star like Robin Williams being kept in waiting in North Africa, while your director needs to rewrite an entire section of a movie because you're just too damn cheap to pay for malaria insurance, even though you ended up spending more money shooting the updated sequences than you would have if you had just originally paid for the damn insurance. But those troubles were just the first act in what would become a big battle between Forsyth and the studio. Forsyth would spend months in Los Angeles, 5,000 miles away from home, getting his film into shape. His assembly cut, which puts together all the usable footage shot for the movie, with the scenes in the expected order of the final cut, ran more than three hours. But assembly cuts are never the final cut of the film. They're the very first cut. And an assembly cut always runs very long. You see what works, you see what doesn't work, and then the director and their editorial staff work together to whittle it down to a more manageable length. Except... Forsyth was in love with most of his movie. Michael Coulter's cinematography was breathtakingly beautiful, and a number of the performances were top shelf. Shortly after New Year's Day 1994, Forsyth brought the studio his cut of the film, which ran two hours and 42 minutes. Now, studios at the time didn't particularly like long movies. The longer a movie, the fewer times it can be shown in a theater on any given day which makes it harder for a company to make its money back. Sure, occasionally you get a movie like Dances with Wolves that are three hours long and can bring audiences in for months. But in January 1994, there weren't a whole lot of theaters anywhere in the world with 20 screens, let alone 30, where a long-ass movie like a Harry Potter film could start every 15 minutes across 12 to 15 screens to accommodate demand. Warners wasn't happy with the running time, 
but Putnam knew how to talk to studio people. He had, after all, been one of them for a brief and shining moment. Let's show the film to a few test audiences, he suggested, and let them tell us what they think. So a few test screenings were arranged, and they did not go very well. The audiences recruited were drawn in by Robin Williams, and, not yet used to him as a dramatic actor, were perplexed by this not very funny movie, and delivered some very unpleasant test scores to the filmmaker. Warners would allow Forsyth to continue editing the film, but they would also bring in their own team to work on their own edit of the film. Within a month, Forsyth had cut his film down to two hours and two minutes, as requested by the studio, and had added the voice of Teresa Russell to narrate much of what had been lost in the edits. But he wasn't very pleased with this new version of the film. Meanwhile, the studio editors had completely eviscerated the movie, eliminating most of what made it a Bill Forsyth film to play up the few honestly comedic moments there were with Robin Williams. That cut ran an anemic 85 minutes. Warners would invite Forsyth to their first test screening of the shortened studio cut, which he would attend but could not make himself watch. He spent the entire screening in the lobby. At the end of the screening, Forsyth watched the audience leave the auditorium. It did not look good. One woman leaving came over to the director, unaware of who he was, and asked him if he had anything to do with the movie. When he simply replied that he had, her response was a bittersweet sucker punch. Dig a hole and bury it. Warners would never screen their version again. When Forsythe's 122-minute cut tested the best out of all the versions, Warner set a May 6, 1994 release date for the film, where it would be amongst the first movies to be released during the all-important summer movie season. The competition wouldn't be too stiff, Being Human would open against the Dana Carvey comedy Clean Slate and the second movie in the Three Ninjas cinematic universe. But while Clean Slate would open in 1,457 theaters and Three Ninjas kick back in 2,038, Being Human was given a token release of just 224 theaters. Critics were polite in their mostly negative reviews of the film, noting the fine performances of Williams and especially John Turturro, and the audiences that were interested in the film certainly found it. While its $764,000 opening weekend gross sounds bad, the per-screen average of $3,410 was nearly 50% higher than the per-screen average for the more highly promoted Clean Slate and double the per-screen average for Three Ninjas Kickback. And then Warners would stop tracking the movie after that first weekend. The film would kick around theaters for a few more weeks, but it would be gone by the end of the month, with a final gross of barely $1.5 million. The theatrical cut of Being Human is available to rent for $1.99 from Amazon, Apple TV, Google Play, and YouTube, but to date, neither Forsythe's original 2-hour and 42-minute version or the studio's 85-minute version have never been seen outside of those disastrous test screenings. The three together would make for a great Criterion box set, not unlike the one for Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Forsyth would eventually disown the movie altogether, unhappy with all the changes he was forced to make, and he would not make another movie for five more years.
When he finally did return to filmmaking, it would be on his own terms. He would return to Glasgow to shoot a movie there for the first time since Comfort and Joy 15 years earlier, and he would once again work with one of his favorite muses, John Gordon Sinclair. Gregory's Two Girls would be a return to his roots. At the turn of the millennium, Gregory's now a 30-something English teacher and at the school he attended in his youth. Gregory is now infatuated with one of his students while being pursued by one of the other teachers. In many ways, Gregory's Two Girl is a reboot of Gregory's Girl for the early internet age, but it's also a far more clever and nuanced comedy than the first film, with the kind of insight that comes with spending 20 years traveling the world and witnessing the various aspects of life around the planet. Sadly, Forsyth continues to be disillusioned with the film industry, despite the relative success of his new film in his home country. Between Gregory's Two Girls, Paul McGuigan's The Acid House, Peter Moulin's Orphans, Anthony Nielsen's The Debt Collector, and Lynn Ramsey's Ratcatcher, 1999 was a watershed year for Scottish cinema, and Gregory's Two Girls feels like the passing of a torch from one generation to another. Bill Forsyth has more than likely made his last movie, but those eight movies are really some kind of magic that deserve to be better known and more seen by modern audiences. Not that his disillusionment with the film industry has kept him away from enjoying the fruits of his labor. When the Scottish BAFTA Awards decided to give Forsyth their 2010 Lifetime Achievement Award, Forsyth not only accepted the award, but teamed with several students attending the Digital Television Resource at Caradonald College in Glasgow to make his own seven-minute movie about his career and his love of film. And in October 2019, when the Museum of Moving Images in Queens, New York, presented a series of Forsyth movies in conjunction with a new digital restoration of Gregory's Girl that would be playing at the Film Forum in Lower Manhattan, Forsyth would hop on a plane and fly across the Atlantic to help promote both programs. I was offered the chance to speak with Mr. Forsyth at the time, but I couldn't make it to New York to speak with him, and that remains one of my biggest regrets of my career as a journalist of cinema. But it's also where the spark for this episode was struck. I would have loved to have been able to thank him for his contributions to cinema and implore him to come back to make one more movie. Or two. Or three. I'm not greedy. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk again soon. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website at filmjerk.com for extra materials about Bill Forsyth and his career. The Film Jerk Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>